Welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. Today is a very special one-off podcast for the five authors from Penguin Random House who are nominated for this year's Man Booker Prize for Fiction. The prize promotes the finest in fiction by rewarding the very best book of the year. It's one of the world's most important literary awards and in its own words has the power to transform the fortunes of authors. The Man Booker Dozen Long List, traditionally 13 books, was announced on the 23rd of July and the six shortlisted books will be revealed on Tuesday the 9th of September, followed by the winner's announcement on the 14th of October. In today's podcast, I'll be speaking to five of the long-listed authors, Richard Flanagan, Howard Jacobson, Neil Mukherjee, Ali Smith and Joshua Ferris, to hear a little bit more about each of their novels. Howard Jacobson is a favourite of the Man Booker Prize, having been awarded it in 2010 for his novel The Finkler Question. This year's long-listed title, Jay, marks a new direction for him. Set in a futuristic world, Jay is a terrifying and strange love story with a momentous catastrophe at its heart, a past mysterious event that everyone in the novel refers to only as what happened if it happened. Comparing it to 1984 and Brave New World for its dystopian qualities, The Independent has called it a snarling, effervescent and ambitious philosophical work of fiction, while another reviewer said, it's so cruelly clever you will want to read it all over again. Welcome, Howard. You're going to just begin by reading us a short passage from Jay, aren't you? I am, yes, thank you. Mornings weren't good for either of them. Here we go again, Aileen said to herself. She swung her legs out of the bed and looked at her feet. Even before Caven's insult, she had disliked them. The broad insteps, the squat scarab toes, more like thumbs, each the same length as the others. She would have liked Pan Pipe's toes, beautifully graduated, musical, such as a sylvan god might have put his lips to. She slid them into slippers and then slid them out again. Housefrau feet. The same old graceless feet carrying her through the same old graceless life. No wonder she caught herself thinking, but couldn't finish. No wonder what. Her heart periodically fluttered. Nothing to worry about, the doctor said, when the tests came back. She'd laughed. Of course it was nothing to worry about. Life was nothing to worry about. In the place she had come from, people said your heart fluttered when someone you loved had died. What if you don't love anybody, she had asked her adoptive mother. Then it's the anniversary of the death of someone you loved in a previous life, the older woman had answered as though she wasn't morbid enough on her own account without having to hear nonsense like that. She didn't know who her actual mother and father were and remembered little about her life before her faux parents picked her out from the orphanage like an orange, except for how, unlike the way she thought a little girl was supposed to be, she felt. But something reverberated further back than memory. Her head was like an echo chamber. It was a good job history books were hard to come by, that diaries were hidden or destroyed, and that libraries put gentle obstacles in the way of research. Otherwise, she might have decided to ransack the past and live her life backwards, if only to discover who it was her heart periodically fluttered for. A sodden old snail appeared from under her bed, dragging a smear of egg white behind it. It was all she could do not to crush it, with her bare, ugly foot. How thank you. Let's let's just begin by talking about the title of the book, which isn't even J, is it? It's not quite J. It's J with J crossed out, J with two fingers across it, as it were. A J obliterated, a J for a letter you're not supposed to use. And this crops up. The idea for this title came from a scene in the in in the book where um, Caven, one of the two central characters, this Caven and Alien, the two lovers, remembers a moment when his father had was was doing a horrendous, grotesque dance because his father was not a dancing man and told him he was dancing like what he was doing was imitating Sammy Davis Jr., a person from the far distant past. And he put his lips over Junior because words beginning with a J were not supposed to be used. Never use a word, begin, never, never begin a word with a J without covering your mouth, 
his father had told him. He didn't know why. And we don't know why, and there are lots of things that we don't know uh, in this book and that slowly become clear to us. And quite near the beginning, two characters, not these two, uh, are having a sort of discussion about the power of, of the past. And one person says, the past happens in order for us to forget about it. And another person says, no, the past only exists so that we can learn from it. And this, it kind of seems to me, this is the sort of tension in the book. Uh, whether you just shut the past out and completely and what that means or whether you try to remember it. Yes, well, it's a book about denial, partly. I mean, we live in denying times. What's being denied is, is, a, is a catastrophe. There have been many catastrophes in, in our times and in the last hundred years. We've, we seem to have had nothing but catastrophes and many of them are falsified and many of them are denied. That's, the, that's at the heart of the book, if you like. But also at the heart of the book is the idea that we don't know, once the past has been denied and the past is difficult anyway, we don't know what our memories are. Um, we don't know what memory belongs to us. There, is, there are uh, what memories we just purloin. What actually was our past? And if we don't remember our past, who are we? What's this that's going on in our heads? I use a, I've used, a, I suppose you could call it a device in the book, uh, something I've never done before, of having extracts of, well, they're extracts of massacres and catastrophes um, taken from real ones and written by me. And they're kind of hung in the, almost on the walls of the book like photographs. I had this idea that I'd seen how novelists like Seabolt use little black and white photographs in their text to evoke the elusiveness of memory. And I thought it would be interesting to hang word pictures, if you like, almost to, to kind of create that. To whom do these past events belong? Do we ever forget them? Should we ever forget them? So everything is murky in that way, yes. It's very difficult to, uh, to get across, I think, uh, to people who may have read your previous books, how different this book is from them. I mean, you are, for example, often a writer very kind of tied to place. London is a, is a great character in many of your books. Um, the real sort of texture of everyday life, places, people, things. And this is set in a place we don't know where it is. We don't even really know what country it's in, do we? No, we don't. Um, some people some people actually say they think it's in. They, they even know the village in Cornwall. But I wanted it to be not anywhere, really, though I had to see places in my mind as I was writing, I, I saw particular places, though the novel isn't isn't set there. It is. It surprised me how different it was in in all these ways from anything I'd done before. It wasn't a plan to set out and do something. It was just as the idea for the story came, wherever the idea of the story came from. It just seemed to me it couldn't be told in in the ways I'd told stories before, and the the newness of that gathered an excitement for me. I suddenly thought, this is actually a wonderful liberation not to be talking about now, not to be talking about the, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing that novels do is they catch, you know, the dailiness of things, the thisness and the thatness. Um, but there can also be a liberation from that. And I seem to need a liberation from that. And also a liberation from the voice with which I address those things in the past. I don't think I was sick of myself or fed up of myself. And I certainly don't want to be critical of myself from the past. But it would appear that I needed another voice and I needed to do things differently. And more than anything else, I needed to escape, I think, from my masculinist voice. Whenever I've been accused of having a masculinist voice in the past, I've denied it. But now I've not got one in this novel, I can, I can retrospectively admit it. I didn't want to be inhabiting that kind of man, making those kinds of jokes, feeling on, you know, put upon but not admitting it, defiant. I didn't want that. I wanted something gentler. So my main male character in this novel is very gentle and wounded. But more than that, there are, I think, th at least three women in this book who I most enjoyed writing about. And writing about them was a very, very new experience for me. And I, and I, I love that. Just tell us a bit about these two central characters, these lovers who, when we first meet them, are sort of not exactly having a kind of uh, path of true love running smooth anyway. Not least because one's just said the other's got big feet. Yes, um, and she happens to agree with that assessment, as in my reading. They meet, she's come from the north of whichever country this is, this is, this is set in, and he's in, 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 at the bottom. Um, so they both live in extremes. And he meets her at a, at a country fair. She's, she's selling paper flowers. She makes paper flowers for a more or less non-existent tourist industry. And he carves love spoons from more or less non-existent tourist industry. And they fall for each other. They fall for each other's gentleness. He is not like 
the men she's used to meeting. This is a very brutal world. What's happened is this is a world in which the other, the people from whom, not so much the, not so much the enemy, but the people from whom society marks itself as different have been removed. Something very literal and brutal has happened. Let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of the scapegoat. And the world is suffering now from, from that. Suddenly there's no one to define oneself against, no one to hate. And so the world is tearing itself apart. And she and there's a lot of domestic violence. And she's been the victim of it. And when she meets him, she, she feels, here's a man who doesn't look as though he's going to be violent to me. And he feels very protective of her. He notices there's a bruise. And he kiss, the first thing he does is kiss her bruise. But they very, very quickly feel that they don't know. It's, it's all happened so wonderfully to them and so tremulously that they can't believe it's as good as that. And they have a horrible feeling that they've been brought together for some purpose. They don't know what that purpose is. And as the book gathers force, we suddenly discover it might be a, it might be a very sinister purpose indeed. Did you feel, I mean, in these subjects that you wanted to address, some of which you've sort of mentioned, the idea of denying the past, the idea of what happens to a society if they might rid themselves of these people who they think uh, are causing them problems. Did you feel at the end you'd sort of come to any conclusions? Were, are there any conclusions to come to? It's a very bleak book, I have to say. It, it, I found myself being quite shocked by how the book was turning out and some of the sentences I was writing. So there is no, there is, I, I, I have nothing cheerful to say um, about any of these subjects. Well, I've very rarely had anything cheerful to say about anything, God knows, but, but certainly not in this book. But you've said it more comically, perhaps. I ha- yes, I have. And people have thought that must mean that I'm a cheerful soul. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, no, 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 nothing is less cheerful than a really good joke, a good black joke. But I suppose that there is, there is a truth, and that's discovered by Esme, one of the characters in the novel I most, I most like. And that is, you must, she says, you must dance with the people you hate, not kill them. You must never finish the argument that you're having. You must never win. The, never win, I suppose, is, is, is the lesson of this book. If you win, if you remove all opposition to yourself, you've had it. Howard, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us today. My pleasure. Lovely, lovely talking to you. Ali Smith is another bookie's favourite for this year's Man Booker Prize, having been shortlisted twice before for her novels Hotel World and The Accidental, which were both also shortlisted for the Orange Prize. Her sixth novel, How to Be Both, is her first to have a historical setting and also does something unique, serious and playful with form. Originally from Inverness, Ali lives in Cambridge and is one of the only three women on this year's long list. As we speak, she's currently guest selector at this year's Edinburgh International Book Festival. How to Be Both is published on August the 28th and an early review in The Independent has described it as dazzling indeed. Welcome, Ali. Now, we've had to, of course, relax the reading rules for you. Everybody's read to us a couple of minutes from their book, but you've essentially written two books in one in How to Be Both. So you're going to read both. I'll read the beginnings of both uh, sections which uh, which comprise this novel. And the novel is made with these two sections, especially and particularly so that we can make two versions of the novel, um, so that you can um, reverse the sections um, and make a new book or a different book, which means that when you take a book off the shelf, uh, as you know the readers that we are, we take a book off the shelf and we go away and we read it. But actually, there is also another version of this book possible. Um, that's that's it. That's the, that's what that's all it is. It's a re- it's a reversal of uh, sections, which is a kind of reversal of time which means that we meet one part of the story first or the other part of the story first and it is entirely up to us or to chance it's a chance it is random and then we're stuck with what what the random has kind of dealt with dealt us you know has, has kind of has given us um there's not much else we can do about it except no at the back of our heads that there is actually another way to read this now, you've, you've said you're going to start with one story in first. And in fact, it was the, the story that I read first. So you're kind of reading my version of the novel. As since it, you're as here it and since it's you and since, <laughs> and since that's how you began it. Um, I actually can't read, can't read it in the same way as anybody's ever going to be able to read it because it's constructed from the inside by me. So, you know, I have, I have no idea uh, what, it, what it reads like one way or the other. It, other than that it should work, you know, craft-wise, it should simply work to hold together and be these two different books. But we'll start with the section uh, which is uh, <clears throat> called Section 1. They're both called Section 1, that you began with, Alex. Consider this moral conundrum for a moment, George's mother says to George, who's sitting in the front passenger seat. Not says, said. George's mother is dead. 
what moral conundrum George says. The passenger seat in the hire car is strange, being on the side the driver's seat is on at home. This must be a bit like driving is, except without the actual, you know, driving. OK, you're an artist, her mother says. Am I? George says, since when? And is that a moral conundrum? Ha ha, her mother says, humour me, imagine that you're an artist. This conversation is happening last May when George's mother is still alive, obviously. She's been dead since September. Now it's January. To be more precise, it's just past midnight on New Year's Eve, which means it has just become the year after the year in which George's mother died. George's father is out. It's better than him being at home, standing maudlin in the kitchen or going round the house switching things off and on. Henry is asleep. She just went in and checked on him. He was dead to the world, though not as dead as the word dead literally means when it means, you know, dead. And now I'll flick forward and uh, read the beginning uh, of the other book, if you like, or of the other section, which you, if you had bought this book the other way around by chance, um, you would encounter first as your very first page. It comes from section one. Oh, this is a mighty twisting thing, fast as a fish being pulled by its mouth on a hook. If a fish could be fished through a six-foot-thick wall made of bricks, or an arrow, if an arrow could fly in a leisurely curl like the coil of a snail or a star with a tail, if the star was shot upwards past maggots and worms and the bones and the rockwork as fast coming up as the fast coming down of the horses in the story of the chariot of the sun when the bold boy drove them, though his father told him not to, and he did anyway, and couldn't hold them, he was too small, too weak, they nose-dived, crashed to the ground, killed the crowds of folk and a field full of sheep beneath and now me falling upward at the rate of 40 horses. Dear God, old father, mother, please spread extempore wherever I'm meant to be hitting, whatever your target, begging your pardon, urgent, a flock of the nice, soft, fleecy, just to cushion, ow, what the, just caught my, what, on a, ouch, dodged a, who, biff, bash, ow, mercy. Wait though, look, is that sun, blue sky, the white drift, the blue through it, rising to Darker blue, start with green blue underpaint, add indigo under lazuriety, mix in lead white or ashes glazed with lapis. Same old sky, earth, again, home again, home again, jiggity down through the up like a seed off a tree with a wing, cause when the roots on their way to the surface break the surface, they turn into stems, and the stems push up over themselves into stalks, and up at the ends of the stalks there are flowers that open for all the world like eyes. Hello, what's this? A boy in front of a painting. Ali, thank you so much for reading both of those narratives. Thank you for letting me read them both. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for letting me read them. It's, it's, it's important. And, and it was, it was, I know we're pushing the rules, but hey, what are rules for her? <laughs> As ever in all your books, they're, they're always there to be broken. I mean, this in a way is the most sort of dramatic and obvious kind of experiment with form that, that I think you've done. But, it, but experimenting in form is what you always do. But just tell us about this. How did this happen? Why? Where did it all start? Well, I was, I was, I was reading Jose Saramago and um, I was reading something he said about time in, in narrative. Uh, I love Saramago. I think he's just one of the best writers ever. And um, he says, the problem with being a writer and writing narrative is that, you know, narrative can only really go one way and that is in time. So you're stuck in time. So if you want to do something which is synchronicitous, where three things are happening at once, as a reader and as a writer, they have to happen one after the other. So you can say a woman throws a stone, a man stands up from sitting on the chair, another man pats a dog, but a woman throws a stone comes first, even though they all happen at once. So he said the only way that you could do it is to put it in columns, and even then you've still got to read a column, you know, one after the other. So he said there's no escaping it. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how could we at least gesture to the a synchronicity which we all know happens in all our lives we are synchronicity all ourselves all our child and our adolescent and all our future selves which haven't happened yet we are them all all at the same time and history in itself although we know it as sequence and we know it also very very you know kind of strongly as consequence um how can we just gesture to this multi-layered sense of time so so then i was thinking a good maybe a good way to, to go about it would be to apply fresco structure to the novel fresco being the form where you cover a wall in plaster and you paint on the plaster before it's dry uh, and then it dries and then it becomes part of the wall but also a picture on the wall because I'd been reading about these 1960s frescoes, uh, not 1960s frescoes, but 1960s damage that had happened to frescoes, the um, Renaissance frescoes, where the clever restorers had learned how to take the, the plaster skin off the wall and had found underneath all these underdrawings, the original sketches or plans for the frescoes. So you have this version which is on the surface and you have this version underneath which is a 
different sometimes, sometimes the same, sometimes very slightly different, sometimes completely different version of the original thing. Now, which of those comes first? And then, you know, that gives you all the questions of time and consequence and sequence and at the same time something which is both there in front of your eyes but you can only see one surface at a time. So just started with this thinking, can you, could, that, could we do that in narrative? It's perspective too, isn't it? Because in what you're talking about, the, the, the frescoes, mm. what comes first depends on who you are, doesn't it? Because for the artist, the underpainting came first. For the viewer, yes. what you see comes first. I have a feeling that with every story, with every single thing made, with, it, with and most things in our lives, there's an understory. And that the understory is possibly the real story, except it's the story that hardly ever gets to the surface. So it is, it's, a, it's a question of, kind of, of, of perspective and dimension. You know, it's something to do with the, the uh, you know, the extra dimension of the thing which underlies us all the time. So just tell us a bit about these two stories okay. in whichever order they, they come in. OK, well, we'll do it your order. OK, so the, the first the first uh, story uh, the, the is George's story. She's um, in her mid-teens. Her mother has died and um, she's grappling with past, present and future tenses, you might say, because she's uh, encountered such a terrible loss. Um, loss will make us understand time you know very graphically and very viscerally um, and so she's the she's a girl who's simply going through the present day um, with the notion of the great m- kind of mound of history behind her um, and this very very recent terrible history and at the same time um, she's uh, she's you know it's, it's it's really about the way that the life of the dead person will not leave her has not left her and is there all the time present tense as ever and yet gone and then the second story uh, in your reading, but it's in the first story in other people's readings, um, is about uh, a Renaissance painter, a real person uh, called Francesco del Cossa, uh, who painted some frescoes on a wall in um, a palace in, Fer- in Ferrara in Italy um, and then he died of the plague. This is almost all we know about del Cossa, that he, that he painted some frescoes and was died, on the plague, died and died in the plague. We know a bit more about his, uh, tiny little bits about his mother and his father's names. That's about all we know about this person. He disappeared after he died in the plague. Everybody forgot him. Uh, he was left out of Vasari's history. He was called something else. Um, 400 years later, someone rediscovered a letter which said, I am the painter who did these pictures in the Ferrara palazzo. This was only after they'd rediscovered there was a palazzo at all because some whitewash fell off a wall and they could see some some pictures kind of peeking out through these cracks and they took the whitewash off, they found these beautiful frescoes and they thought, who did, who did these? It must have been Cosimo Tura. And then someone in an archive found a letter saying, I am the painter Francesco del Cosa and I did these three um, uh, parts of the wall in the palazzo Scafanoia in Ferrara. So that's all we have about this person who disappeared completely and then re-emerged. And for, for me that's just a Oh, what a beautiful story. The idea that we do disappear, but we do re-emerge. Something of us re-emerges, particularly in the life of art. And I think this book is really very much about the ways in which life and art um, shake hands. I also love the way that you bring us into it. I mean, as you've said, I read one part uh, before another, but actually I didn't do it by accident. I mean, my my uh, experience will differ from people who've just plucked it off the shelf in exactly. the bookshop, yeah. but I had both versions and I chose. And I just had, in a, I, I felt that sense of responsibility in doing the choosing, but there was just something that called to me about this present day story, perhaps because it was more familiar, mm-hmm. but it did also strike me that you implicate us, you implicate the reader in the act of reading with just the way that you've made this book. Because I am a reader who likes to be implicated, it's probably why I'm a writer who likes to implicate. I think one of the one of the most exciting things that a book in our hands can do is make us know that we are here. And not just here, but that we can do something, that we are responsible in some ways to the stories which we come upon or which come to us. And, and, and we're responsible to receive and accept and sometimes to make them as well, that it's a communal act. I mean, I, have, I think writing and reading are all communal acts. I think that no book gets written without all the books that have come before it and all the writers who've ever written before it. And there's, so there's something to me about the whole act of action of uh, putting a, a, a fiction out there, which uh, is communal. I'm just going to ask you one final question, mm. which you don't have to answer if you feel I'm letting daylight into on magic. But, you know, this is all about the reading experience. Mm. But what about the writing experience? Did you write one before the other? Yes, I did. I did write one before the other. But before that, I wrote a ghost version, which wasn't doing the job for me. And I kept thinking, this is, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is, I know I'm getting towards this book, but what is this? What is this? And then just simply one day, I just ran into as if as if ran into a wall or, you know, it was as literal as that. It was like kind of, oh, OK. 
got it. So when I think about this book, for me, there's another, there's something else underlying even it that I had to get through to get to the actual book itself. The underpainting. The underpainting. And then the book, I swear to you, wrote itself. Many thanks, Ali, for joining us today. Big pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Richard Flanagan was born in Longford, Tasmania in 1961 and now lives in Hobart. He grew up in a remote mining town, leaving school at 16 to work as a bush labourer. Later, he studied history at the universities of Tasmania and Oxford. Regarded as one of the leading Australian writers of his generation, Richard's six novels have received numerous honours across the world. Hailed as a masterpiece in the Financial Times and The Guardian in this country, The Narrow Road to the Deep North is a savagely beautiful novel about the cruelty of war and the impossibility of love. Richard has described Narrow Road as a deeply personal novel and the book is dedicated to Prisoner Sanbiaco Sanjugo 335, the number his father was given when he was a Japanese POW on the Burma Death Railway. I'm delighted that Richard's joining us down the line now. Good afternoon, Richard. I think it's actually I think it's evening with you. Good afternoon, Alex. <laughs> and I think you're just going to begin by by giving us a little reading from the book, a, a flavour of it. Okay. And what of the line? Would the dream of a global Japanese empire lost to radioactive dust? The railway no longer had either purpose or support. The Japanese engineers and guards whose responsibility it was were imprisoned or repatriated. The slaves that had remained to maintain the line were freed. Within weeks of the end of the war, the line began welcoming its own end. It was abandoned by the ties. It was dismantled by the English. It was pulled up and sold off by tribespeople. After a further time, the line began to bend and warp. Its banks broke. Its embankments and bridges washed away and its cuttings filled in. Abandonment ceded to metamorphosis where once death stalked Life returned. The line welcomed rain and sun. Seeds germinated in mass graves between skulls and femurs and broken pick handles. Tendrils rose up alongside dog spikes and clavicles, thrust around teak sleepers and tibias, scapulars, vertebrae, fibulas and femurs. The line welcomed weeds into the embankments the slaves had carried as dirt and rock in their tankers. It welcomed termites into the fallen bridge timbers the slaves had cut and carried and raised. It welcomed rust over the railway irons the slaves had shouldered in long rows. It welcomed rot and ruin. In the end, all that was left was the heat and the clouds of rain and insects and birds and animals and vegetation that neither knew nor cared. Humans are only one of many things and all these things long to live and the highest form of living is freedom. A man to be a man, a cloud to be a cloud, bamboo to be bamboo. Decades would pass. A few short sections would be cleared by those who thought memory mattered, transformed in time, into strangely resurrected, trunkless leagues, tourist sites, sacred sites, national sites. But the line was broken, as all lines finally are. It was all for nothing, and of it, nothing remained. People kept on longing for meaning and hope, but the annals of the past are a muddy story of chaos only and of that colossal ruin, boundless and buried. The lone and level jungle stretch far away of imperial dreams and dead men. All that remained was long grass. Richard, the narrow road to the deep north, is its subject is... Um, the construction of the Burma Death Railway, isn't it? Just tell me how that began for you as a potential subject. 
Uh, well, my um, my father, as you spoke of in your introduction, was a Japanese prisoner of war. He was one of a now near mythical group in Australian memory called Dunlop's Thousand, and they lived and died in the death railway in what was then Siam and is today Thailand. And uh, he was a survivor of that, of cholera, uh, the various horrors that um, that represents. And I guess if Basho's great work of literature, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, written in the 17th century, is one of the high points of Japanese culture, my father's experience was really one of its lowest. And I always knew at a certain point that I guess that there were two great facts of my life. One was that I was a writer and the other was this experience of my father, which shaped me and my siblings fundamentally. I knew at some point I would have to write this book if I was to keep on writing. You have written many books before and you've ranged very widely over different um, styles, different genres, different subject matters. What was it that, that sort of cleared the way, as it were? What was it that made you able to tackle this obviously very emotionally powerful and personal subject for you? Uh, well, it it took me 12 years. It took me five failed attempts. I, I wrote really five different novels in order to arrive at this one. But the, the key to it all was really an image which is bound up in a story that my parents were fond of, which was of a a Latvian man who came to live in the, the little town I grew up in, where well, I was born in, called Longford, Tasmania, before we moved to Rosebury. He survived the, the horrors that uh, affected those bloodlands of Eastern Europe during the war. And at war's end, he returned to his village to find it completely destroyed. And um, his wife, he was told, was dead. And he searched everywhere for her. He, he refused to believe that she wasn't alive. And that then he searched um, the horrific apocalyptic world of um, post-war Eastern Europe for in the displaced persons camps and Red Cross camps. And uh, after two years, he had to finally come to terms with the fact that he couldn't find her, that she was dead. And he immigrated to Australia and ended up living in this town of Longford where he married an Australian woman and had a family. And then in 1957, he took a trip to Sydney on the mainland of Australia and he was walking down a street uh, there, a crowded street, and he saw his wife, his Latvian wife, walking towards him with her child on either hand. And he had to make a decision in a, a few moments whether or not he would um, acknowledge her or whether he would walk on. And I always thought that was the most beautiful story I'd ever heard about love. And in 2002, I was walking across the Sydney Harbour Bridge and I suddenly I, I had this image of a an ex-POW walking across the bridge amidst the crowds there in a, a late summer afternoon and seeing a woman he'd thought dead, who's the great love of his life, walking towards him. And I, I understood, without knowing how I might achieve it, that if I could have that love story at the heart of the novel, then I had a way of being able to address the darkness of the story because I, I think fundamentally human beings need hope um, and they, without hope, we've lost all reason for existence. And an art that doesn't allow for hope, we resent, and in the end, it fails because it is ultimately untrue to what we are as human beings. It's untrue to life. And really, love is perhaps the the most sublime expression of hope. And so I, I knew that great love stories demonstrate the great truth about love, that we discover eternity in a moment that dies immediately after. And war stories inevitably deal in rupture and death. So it seemed to me that war illuminates love. But love, if it doesn't explain or redeem the dark chaos at the centre of things, it at least gives us hope to, to carry on beyond it. So it was in that story um, that I discovered the key to writing the novel. The character that you create to tell this story, Dorigo Evans, uh, a surgeon who who finds himself um, in Burma, we we hear about both sides of his life, don't we? We hear about um, his love affairs and we hear about his terrible experiences during 
uh, wartime. And one of the things that we, you, you sort of settle for us very quickly, is that he does survive. We know that he lives because we meet him very early on in old age when he has become a war hero when as you say or he says he's the subject of biographies plays documentaries veneration hagiographies adulation and it's sort of he's a he's a different character isn't he by then and and kind of unpicking how all that happened is really the way that the novel works well i i'm not a much you know some people view the the art of the novel as being about the controlled release of information and there's truth in that but I think the power of story doesn't lie in a three thimble trick where you conceal where the pea is hidden or what the conclusion is but the power of story is simply in the way the tale unravels and it is in the strange openness we might have to the, the chaos that is at the heart of things and, and, and that characters are allowed to be inconsistent and life is allowed to be erratic in the way we know it to be. So I like to present a character who we think we know at the beginning, but slowly we come to realise there's so much we don't know because again and again we discover about those closest to us that they have a, a public life and a private life and then a secret life and all these are different and contradictory. I also, with Dorigo Evans, wanted to have a character who... I was interested in the notions of celebrity that are so powerful these days and, and the way in which we constantly shape ourselves to other people's expectations and sometimes um, we sink to those and sometimes we rise to them. And in his case, for various reasons, the people he was with, the POWs, needed him to behave heroically, and he does. But in his heart, he feels anything but heroic and he feels that his actions and his character but in his soul, he is, I believe, a cowardly failure. And um, there is no judgment on this. It is just the strangeness of human beings that, you know, they encapsulate both possibilities. And what is it that enables one to rise to the best in themselves or sink to the worst? Those were the things I guess I was interested in trying to understand a little more or explore a little more with his character. Well, you you also have to explore the the other part of war, the other side of of, of war, which is the the great um, cruelty and, in many cases, the sadism of the captors. And I just wondered what kind of a a challenge that was for you um, as a novelist, because uh, it's obviously an extraordinarily difficult thing to sort of reprise in fictional terms. Well, I, I mean, I fear that it may be easier than readers might think because I think the the murderous and the monstrous are, is buried as deeply in every human heart as the the loving and the kind and the altruistic um, and so um, these things these things are, are not so difficult to find within yourself Thank you so much for joining us and and talking to us more about it. Um, Very many thanks, Richard. Thank you, Alex. Neil Mukherjee was born in Calcutta. The Lives of Others is his second novel following the award-winning A Life Apart in 2010. An epic saga telling the story of a Bengali family in Calcutta, The Lives of Others explores a family that is decaying as the society around it fractures and one young man who tries to reimagine his place in the world. Hailed by Rose Tremaine as an outstanding novel and by Anita Desai as a devastating portrayal of a decadent society, The Lives of Others was published earlier this year in May to critical acclaim and I'm delighted to welcome Neil to speak to us now. Uh, Neil, I think you're going to begin with a, a short reading, aren't you? Yes, um, I'm, I'm going to read just under a page, about half a page. When you look at a field full of ripened grain ready to be harvested, it's a uniform brown gold sand colour. But as you cut with your sickle, you notice that there's still some green inside, hiding within the larger brown, a few long partially green leaves, a little green fraction of a stalk. And as you cut these down, a tiny cloud of insects hiding in their massed density flies out. Some wriggle away into the thickets not yet harvested. Some scurry into the grass and sheaves and earth around you. And yet another thing, the sound of the paddy plants as you enter the thicket and cut them down. That rustle and rattle, louder, much louder now, 
accompanied by something between the snap of an almost dry stalk and the wet snip of cutting through a twig that's still partly green. I can't explain very well. Taken together, this swishing of dry, dense vegetation fills your ears. You can hear it at night, resounding in your head, before you slip into the total silence of sleep. My hands were sore in the morning after a night's sleep. I couldn't make a fist, so I made myself make a fist ten, fifteen, twenty times with each hand. The cracks reopened and beaded with blood. Some were tiny red threads, the red smudging when I touched them. And speaking of sleep, I'd never known sleep like this before, a total wiping out of all senses, all consciousness. I hadn't known exhaustion like this before either, a bone-breaking, bone-aching tiredness. That little revelation again, granted to an outsider, of the hidden inner cogs and wheels of the lives of others. Now I knew yet another reason why everyone in the heart of rural Bengal went to sleep so early. Thank you so much. Tell us a bit about who is who is talking there. And, and well, the, this is the narrator of the interleaved first-person narrative, which comes in alternate chapters in counterpoint to the omniscient narration, third-person narrative. And the narrator in this first-person narrative is a young man called Shupratik, who is actually a Naxalite activist. Naxalite or the Naxalite revolution was a, an ultra-left Maoist revolution that broke out in the north of Bengal in this town called Nakshalbari, and which is why it's called Naxalite. I mean, the, the whole thing is called Naxalism. In sort of March, May 1967, and it was put down brutally and very quickly. But the fallout of the revolution, of the short revolution, was immense. Uh, there was a whole set of urban intelligentsia uh, young college-going women and men in the cities, notably in Calcutta uh, and in the south of India, who, inspired by the ideals of Mao, went out to the countryside in order to uh, militize peasants into armed uprising against landlords and you know, to change the, the gross inequality that they were at the receiving end of. And this young man, who uh, he's 20 years old, and he leaves his college and he goes to the countryside in West Bengal, and he tries to live with the peasants, like the peasants, and Mao had enjoined them to do, to be like a fish amongst other fish in water. And he is narrating, he, this, this narrative is a sort of journal or a diary or sort of letters of, the, of his time in the countryside. And he is, as you said, he's, he's part of a huge family, and they are really the other kind of yes. part of the book, aren't they? Yes, the um, the extraordinary Ghosh family. Yes. Uh, well, um, uh, my 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 point was actually not 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 to write a family saga, and and in in fact I don't see the book as a, as a family saga. But 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 it's a sad fact of life that if you're Indian, whatever you write, it gets seen as an epic family saga. But but um, that's interesting. Why do you, why do you think that is? Just to just to interrupt you for a second, I think you're absolutely right. But what is it that that makes us sort of put it in that kind of? I don't bracket? know because I mean I mean. Um, um, uh, well, this is a very long question. We could be here for ages. But I, I was kind of trying to think about. I mean, I mean, it's as much a family saga as as a, as a sweetie rapper is a sweet. I mean, the family saga is just a stepping stone. And and I, I was trying to think very hard about the bourgeois realist novel. And I was trying to think about form. So I looked at one of the or uh, uh, some examples of, of, of the bourgeois realist novel, uh, Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks, of which this book, uh, to compare the very great with the very small, is, is, is a kind of rewriting. And you will not find people describing Buddenbrooks as a family saga, which of course it is. It is centrally a family saga. But I was trying to think about what the bourgeois realist novel does. And, and I was trying to think also of what M. John Harrison brilliantly said, always ask of a genre what it cannot do. So I was trying to think about, think very hard about the limitations of the bourgeois realist novel. And I was looking at the uh, Marxist uh, criticism on Mann by this extraordinary Hungarian critic called Georgi Lukács. And I was trying to bring all these meditations to bear on the form of the realist novel to see 
if it couldn't be made to articulate something against itself because the 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 realist novel has been complicit in holding up a mirror or legitimizing or making sense of the world of the middle class to themselves and all genres do a certain kind of social work and i think the novel form from its very inception has been complicit along with the rise of the middle classes it's been complicit with making sense of the world for them and and i wanted to crack that mirror a little bit and i wanted to sort of think about what the genre cannot do but in order to do that i had to think about the novel dialectically which is why the family saga is alternates in my book with the first person account of something as far away you can get from the family saga i mean in fact a political deconstruction of the family unit that is how the book came about i guess the title is 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 sort of uh can be brought into play here because you know the family is a a group of individuals who on many occasions are not really communicating uh, very well with one another but do actually also see themselves as defined against the other yes yes and and there are various notions of the other going on in in the book i i remember i i was rereading james salter's novel light years to teach a class uh the very early stages when i was planning my book i hadn't even started writing probably and that sentence from light years leaped out how can we imagine what our lives should be without the illumination of the lives of others and i instantly had the ruling metaphor for my novel um the, the two things about that salter sentence um the use of the word should uh, a certain kind of prescription if you will and the use of the word illumination our lives are illuminated by the knowledge of the lives of others and i thought this in one sentence is actually what the novel is all about it is imagining other people's lives it is about empathy it is it is the beginning of the moral sense when you start thinking about how others live how others live their lives what they think about the narrative of their own lives so i brought all these things together into play and a family affords a very good platform for doing that kind of thing. Just tell us a little bit about the setting and and the timing. I mean obviously you uh you've mentioned already that this was a moment of great political unrest. So clearly that's an, a sort of an attractive uh thing for a, for a, a storyteller to to want to gravitate to. But just tell us a bit about what led you to West Bengal and to the 1960s. Well, the time it was obviously before I was born, but I I mean in the present tense the novel unfolds in a very short period between 1967 and 70, but it goes back to the early 20th century. I wanted each character to have equal weight on the page when they appeared. So and some of these people come with past, so I wanted to go back into their past lives as well. Growing up in the 70s in Calcutta, which I did, one sort of knew about the Naxalite revolution and it was talked of in terms of great fear. It was a kind of terrorist movement, although I try not to use the word terrorist because it's a hypostatized word and it means really nothing at all. But I I felt comfortable writing about this world simply because I had grown up and culture changes very slowly so you know in in some ways growing up in the 70s i felt i could really imagine what the world in the 60s was like and you know there was a great deal of bengali literature i could sort of use as research and a launching pad so in some ways i was writing about what i know but the shuprathik narratives the first person narrative set in the countryside for that i had to do extensive research and i had to imagine the whole thing but in some ways it's it's a bengali world which i was born into and i was brought up in so it's a familiar world for me and i think that became the starting point of writing the book thank you very much for joining us to tell us thank you. more about it Joshua Ferris is one of the American authors to benefit from Man Booker's change to the awards rules for the first time this year. Picked by the New Yorker for their prestigious 20 under 40 list, Ferris won legions of fans with his debut, what the Observer called the stomach-turningly accurate workplace comedy Then We Came to the End, first published in 2007. His third novel, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour, stars curmudgeonly New York dentist Paul O'Rourke and his trials and tribulations when someone starts to impersonate him online. BBC Radio 4's Saturday Review said of the book, "Glorious, a very very funny novel." 
If misanthropy is going to come from anywhere, it's from a lifetime's confrontation with halitosis. Joshua was born in Chicago in 1974 and now lives in New York, and he joins us from his home there. Thanks so much for joining us, Joshua. Thanks for having me. And you're just gonna gonna begin by giving us a, a short reading, aren't you? I am. There goes. I would have liked to believe in God. Now there was something that could have been everything better than anything else. By believing in God, I could succumb to ease and comfort and reassurance. Fearlessness was an option. Eternity was mine. It could all be mine. The awesome pitch of organ pipes, the musings of Anglican bishops. All I had to do was put away my doubts and believe. Whenever I was on the verge of that, I would call myself back from the brink. Keep clarity, I would cry. Hold on to yourself. For the reason the world was so pleasurable and why I wanted to extend that pleasure through total submission to God was my thoughts, my reasoned, stubborn, skeptical thoughts, which always unfortunately made quick work of God. Non-servium, cried Lucifer. He didn't want to eat the faces off of little babies. He just didn't want to serve. If he had served, he would have been just one more among the angels, indistinct, his name hard to recall, even among the devout. I've tried reading the Bible. I never make it past all the talk about the firmament. The firmament is the thing, on day one or two, that divides the waters from the waters. Here you have the firmament. Next to the firmament, the waters. Stay with the waters long enough, presumably you hit another stretch of firmament. I can't say for sure. At the first mention of the firmament, I start bleeding tears of terminal boredom. I grow restless. I flick ahead. It appears to go like this. Firmament, super long middle part, Jesus. You could spend half your life reading about the barren wives and the kindled wraths and all the rest of it before you got to the do unto others part, which as I understand it, is the high watermark. It might not be. For all I know, the high watermark is to be found in, say, the second book of Kings. Imagine making it through the first book of Kings. They don't make it easy. I'll tell you what amazes me. I'm practically always sitting now next to somebody on the subway who's reading the Bible, who's smack in the middle of the thing, like on page 150,000, and every single sentence has been underlined or highlighted. I have to think, there's no way this tattooed Hispanic youth has lavished on the remaining pages of his Bible such poignant highlighting so prominently on display here in the hinterlands of two chronicles. Then he'll turn the page, and sure the fuck enough, even more highlighting, in multiple colors, with notes in a friar's hand. And I don't mean to suggest he simply turned the page. Dude leaped forward three, four hundred pages to reference or cross-check or whatever, and there, glowing in ingot blocks, was the same concentration of highlighting. I swear to God, there are still people out there devoting their entire lives to the Bible. It's either old black ladies or middle-aged black guys or Hispanic guys with neckties or white guys you're surprised are white. Thousands of hours they've been up studying and highlighting Bible passages while I've been sleeping or watching baseball or abusing myself carnally on a recliner. Sometimes I think I've wasted my life. Of course I've wasted my life. Did I have a choice? Of course I did, 20 years of nights with the Bible. But who was to say that even then, my life, conscientiously devout, rigorously applied, monastically contained, and effortfully open to God's every hint and clobber would have been more meaningful than it was? That was a mighty Pascal's wager, the possibility of eternity in exchange for the limited hours of my one certain go-around. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's uh, that was that was a very funny passage in what is a very funny book, uh, and your hero, uh, Paul O'Rourke, is a real sort of refusenik, isn't he? He just will not join in. He cannot be like ordinary people. He won't buy rugs. He won't drink white wine. He won't listen to you two. What is his problem? Well, maybe it's late capitalist anhedonia. I'm not really sure. I mean, you know, he doesn't like to buy anymore, and uh, certainly in America, when you've fail to buy, you're failing to be a good citizen. So, you know, there's a sense in which I think he's alienated not only from the normal ways in which people go about conducting their business and achieving happiness, but he also has this, you know, 
pretty big metaphysical chip on his shoulder and that he's a determined atheist who, you know, insists on uh, certain reasoned um, attributes for the universe. And given this combination of the inability to sort of live practically in the world with respect to, you know, the easier things like buying rugs, combined with this, uh, you know, larger gripe that he has about the meaninglessness of the universe, he's just a man on the outs in, in all respects. One of the things that's that's also interesting about him, though, is that he is so great at his job. He's a dentist. He does extremely well, you know, at the business side of it. His business is booming. But he is also a brilliant dentist. So it's like he's a kind of guy of, of two halves, really. He's both competent and sort of terribly ill-equipped for the modern world, as you say. There are a lot of things that you can say about this man because he, he is he is sort of ill-suited to a lot of things and he, he makes his life a lot harder. But one, of things, one thing that I think you, you have to give him is that he is, he's not only committed to dentistry, but he's really committed to his complaints too. I mean, he's, a, he's fully immersed. He's fully committed to living life in a serious way. And this obviously uh, carries over to his professional life. He's devoted to his patients. He wants to see the best for them. He knows more than they do because he's a, you know, he's a professional dentist and he understands the importance of flossing and, and daily care. And uh, you know, some of his unease uh, comes from seeing his patients fail to, uh, to follow his advice. And I think this only sort of sends him further down the rabbit, rabbit hole of, uh, of discontent. But you know, nevertheless, he, he really is um, a, a, a passionate man and that passion um, naturally come, you know, carries over into what he does on a day-to-day basis. Just tell us a, a little bit about what happens to him, because in the book, something highly unexpected happens, uh, and then it gradually unravels. Now, we, we, we won't sort of give away uh, what happens much later in the book, but essentially someone gets in touch with him, don't they? Well, he's very committed to not being online, and one day his co-workers tell him that they have a website, his dental practice has a website. So this is very aggravating to him and very mysterious, and he doesn't quite know why someone would do this or for what reason. And shortly thereafter, certain things appear on his website, um, things that look very biblical, passages from the Bible or from some other religious text. And so now he's even further aggravated and intrigued. Then uh, someone creates a Facebook page for him and then a Twitter account. And they start to um, engage him in an email exchange. And he becomes further and further involved in what is essentially the possibility of a little-known and highly oppressed religious group that claims him for a member. One, he has to find out whether or not this religious group is a legitimate entity. And two, whether or not he rightfully belongs in a kind of inheritance or blood right sort of way uh, to this group. And with the group, what you're doing, it seemed to me, was raising the possibility of um, what a commitment to doubt and what a commitment to sort of non-belief might mean in a world of belief, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you know, I think it's fairly common amongst believers today in traditional religions to have moments of doubt and to have their faith shaken. I think that, you know, if you're not dealing with somebody who reasonably goes through periods of time where something as taken on faith as belief is, if they don't go through periods of of doubt, then you're just really talking about someone who, I think, buys entirely into every element of religion. You know, the human approach to religion is one that is marked by these periods of doubt and, and questions of doubt. I think what I've done here is flipped that uh, on its head and made a religion that has as its prevailing principle doubt, doubt toward a higher power, doubt toward the wisdom of invoking higher powers to explain what happens on earth. And that is kind of buttressed by moments of belief. In other words, I mean, in order to really devote yourself to a particular religious tenet, you know, you do have to have some belief in its feasibility. And because for this particular atheist, uh, my main character, because he is so doubtful, so skeptical about the likelihood of God. Um, it, it really appeals to him because if you just sort of close your eyes, more or less, and doubt, 
then somehow something bubbles up from underneath, from below, that says, oh, actually, you know, this might be a, a reasonable and viable belief system for me. So he, he's, able to, he's able to at least entertain the possibility that this group and its religious component, you know, if not factually true, represent at least a better way of thinking for him. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for joining us for this special Man Booker Prize edition of the Vintage Podcast, featuring the long-listed authors from Penguin Random House. Our thanks to Richard Flanagan, Howard Jacobson, Neil Mukherjee, Ali Smith and Joshua Ferris, and the very best of luck to them all for the next stage of the prize. Join us for the regular monthly Vintage Podcast, where September's edition sees two very special vintage authors in conversation. And don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>